0: This morning, we're going to continue our teaching series, the 10, and I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a personal Bible, um, we would love to gift one to you. Um, we believe God's Word uh, is, speaks to us. The Spirit uses the Word of God and so we want to be able to read and engage in that. And we want you to give you a translation, a Bible, to be able to do that faithfully for yourself. So many of you maybe have a Bible app. Um, sometimes it's nice to just pull out something physical and contemplate and reflect. And so I'm going to read in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, the words will be on the screen. Um, maybe you'll flip there and, and read along with me. But I just encourage you to also just listen and receive as we step into the story for today's teaching. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am proclaiming as you hear them today. Learn and follow them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire on the mountain. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to report the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in heaven above or on earth below or the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them because I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children to the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien among you. Who lives within your city gates, so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do? Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and so that you may prosper in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Let us pray. Speak to us, Lord. We need you. Lord, as we contemplate and reflect on our life and as we hear your word, open our hearts open our minds to receive the word that you have for us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. We give this time as we have all morning to you, Jesus. Help us live in response to who you are and what you are d- have done for us. Thank you for that truth and for that hope for the story that we get a step into, that goes on for all eternity. It's in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. We've been going through this teaching series called The Ten. We've been, de- we've been journeying through Deuteronomy as a whole, really over the last several months since the fall, and we've taken the last several weeks to focus in on these Ten Commandments, And sometimes when we hear or we think of these 10 commandments, they feel like a sledgehammer coming down on us, like pounding us into submission that we have to or we ought. But really the way these commandments were designed were, were, were to give life and to help God's people live God's ways in response to who he is. So it's not a checklist or a punch list or a scorecard where you start to evaluate yourself on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and even Sunday, and here we go again. Like, how am I doing? Am I getting the grade? Rather, when we understand who God is and what he has done for us, and we know the story behind these commandments, and we simply respond, the law that was written on stone tablets start to get written on our heart and start to be lived realities rather than the law that feels like a sledgehammer. Now, one of the things that I have been grateful for lately is like Spotify and Apple Music and things like that because I can stream all kinds of different like podcasts and music. And it takes me back to when like listening to good music or listening to certain podcasts weren't quite so easy. Um, it takes me back before the internet was fast and we had all of this 5G stuff to, to burn CDs created on a PC, maybe downloaded through programs called LimeWire, I don't know from experience, to create things to listen to so that I could have my music bumping in my car as I went down the road. So... You know, I'm th- thankfully, that music has been made a little more accessible, and it's been good for my conscience, so gone is the era of at least those burn CDs and gibberish song titles and having to figure out what is what. And maybe shortly after that era, Nicolas Cage and his team went on a daring but essentially like essential mission to steal the Declaration of Independence, ironically, before which, if you watch the movie, when there was like VHSs and, and you know, and the VCRs, there was that blue screen that said FBI warning, like do not pirate, or maybe it was green, where it was like we are about to watch a movie, someone stealing something for whatever justifiable reason for for treasure or adventure, and ironically, right before it, it's like, yeah, don't pirate this, don't 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 burn this while technology advances forward it's interesting we can we can kind of laugh and think about some of those ironies of how we watch movies listen to music and, and and it does shape and inform our lives but the human heart's proclivity for justifying means to achieve an ends does not change we have our domains we have our possessions, or so we think, and we have that, and all that is in it. One of my earliest memories was um, from just kid. I were we joking earlier about a concussion, and I have had several. So some of my memories like come and go, but this one in particular is etched into my mind. I, I was at youth camp, and it was like my first one overnight for an extended period of days and I was so excited because I packed all my things I even had saved up money so that I could buy different snacks and candies at the canteen I could buy the necessary swag to alert people that I had gone to camp <laughs> and I remember so excited on one of the first days I was there with my best friend We had our, I I still have like, I'm holding my hands like this because it was like a little waterproof like container where like the the bottom you could rotate off for the change and the top was where you stuck all the dollar bills in and I wore it around my neck loudly and proudly (laughs) and I went to the canteen one of the first days with one of my best friends who I was there with and bought a hat and then I went out and played and I sat down my money and I sat down my hat, or so I thought, and I came back to that spot, and the hat was gone. And I don't know what happened to it. I was like, "Well, did I did I accidentally remember? Again, memories are fuzzy. Did I did I take it up to my to my bunk, and I was little, and or did did I leave it with the stuff because my Bible and, and this container was there?" And I'm sad to report that I was so consumed with the loss of my hat that my only response was that I hadn't been so excited and so consumed with this that I accused my best friend, who I was there with, of taking my hat. I was so preoccupied that all I could be, I was like, are you sure you didn't take it? I can't find mine. You have one that's identical. Are you sure I didn't use yours and just take mine? And I I, I went back and forth. And and it'd be nice if it continued for a day. And maybe I worked through the process college just a hat, but I was little. I was excited. I was fixated. And all I could do was be so consumed with the hat that ultimately I kept accusing my friend And it ultimately broke the relationship. Now, several years later, we were able to have a conversation, and I was older, and I was able to, quote-unquote, get over it. But it's interesting that that's one of the few memories I have from church camp. That my heart was so bent on possessing something, that I was so consumed with, with having something that I was willing to break a relationship for it. I put a possession over a person in that moment. And you you might be able to like slough it off and be like, oh, you're a kid, it's no big deal. But it's a memory I have. And what's interesting is that proclivity has followed me throughout my life. And I don't think I'm alone here in this room or even online. That our heart and the nature on some level is we have a tendency to put certain things, certain possessions over people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You may be able to think of your own story. Maybe it wasn't one where you accused your friend of theft. But you had something so valuable, something that you cherished something finite or tangible, and you put that over the relationship with the person, where the problem became bigger than the person. And our perspective is often skewed. And over time, through good biblical teaching and encouragement from friends, and even through my own story as I've shared before, learning the proper placement of possessions Kind of can present this overwhelming, insurmountable feeling of loss. And while the proper placement, maybe of physical things, maybe I should have kept better track of where I had put my hat, may prevent their actual loss, the bigger issue is the proper placement of possessions within the hierarchy of my heart. See, so the relationship we have with our possessions. May be the difference between working through a challenge, working through conflict in relationship, or putting our possession or dream or aspiration above that relationship. See, it's into this type of scenario that we have God actually gifting his family a whole plot of land to live, to grow. And thrive. See, these people were God's possession. They were cherished. That's why he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And the goal was that as his cherished possession, he was going to bestow certain blessings on them. That means they would accumulate certain things so that the world and watching nations would know that they were in attachment, they were in connection with the true and living God. Because in contrast to the other nations, they would understand the hierarchy that physical things, that finite things, play in the realm and the domain of our world. That there is a proper order and that who sits on the throne of our life, as we looked at in earlier commandments, is to be God and nothing else is supposed to sit on the hierarchy, on the throne of our hearts than Him. And what happens is... We can get consumed with ideas and things and misplace and replace God on the throne of our hearts. And so he was giving these people a place where they could display God's will and God's way to the watching world so that they would know who was in charge. So not just who was in charge and who had authority, but who actually was a benevolent God who wasn't beating people over the head with a sledgehammer, but actually bestowing good gifts because they were cherished, because people were made in his image and created to display his image, his will and his way to the world. And so there was a will in a way that was to be mediated in a way that was often misunderstood. So when do not steal is in the Ten Commandments. It helps God's people begin to process the place and the role of possessions within their life. See, it could be said that this word of life actually encompasses some of the other commandments itself. See, murder is the stealing of a person's life. Adultery is the stealing of a person's spouse. Coveting is the desire to steal what belongs to another person. Giving false testimony is stealing justice. Mm -hmm. Stealing or theft is taking something from someone. It's taking their possession. It's interesting how this word of life is also open-ended. I just want to contrast this to the other commandments. Honor your father and mother has a definite thing. Adultery, confines of marriage, even some of the later commandments, uh, uh, desiring other things, your, what your neighbor has. The early commandments of replacing things from God. They, they all have a particular focus and direction. But do not steal is open-ended. Meaning most of the other commandments are related to how we treat each other and relate to the world around us. They have that specific individual in mind. This commandment does not even hint at the object or person to whom this is directed. Therefore, when we start to process this commandment, we cannot take anything that belongs to another person, because stealing is valuing a possession over a person. So very quickly, when we start to process this commandment, it starts to expand because it's not definite in terms of an individual or a, a, a relationship, it begins to expand. Both material items, the understanding that private property in and, and all forms are, are, exist, but also immaterial items like a person's reputation, dignity, trust, and intellectual property start to come into view. It's more than just the finite things, which are true. There are possessions. There is is a relationship that we have to those things. But also, it's immaterial things as well. And even as I've stated this, I have presumed one major tenet that we all agree on the boundary lines. (laughs) See, without agreement, a social contract, if you will, then maybe what's yours really isn't yours, but it's mine. And just think about how that starts to slip into our everyday life. The boundary lines of what is yours and what is mine blur. Because every person brings a unique perspective and a unique story, and without some agreement or social contract, without some bigger story or perspective, no wonder there's so much conflict. Because what's yours is not really yours. It's mine. But maybe when we start to take God's perspective into view, the boundary lines become a little bit more clear, specifically for this covenant community, Israel. They, they were to relate to each other. They were to choose God And thus, in choosing him, they would act a certain way with others. Meaning that as they would live, that as they maybe would even accumulate, as they would take domain of their influence, their spheres of where they are, their homes, how they would work, uh, as they moved into this new land, as they would begin to possess certain things, and maybe even accumulate, as they would, maybe for today's terms, build wealth, so to speak... That they would have no fear from others within the covenant community that it would be taken. Because there's a trust there that as you work, as as you put your hand to the task, what is yours is yours and what is mine is mine. But we are after the same endeavor. So there's also this understanding of private property or maybe a little bit of ownership but we're also in this together to achieve a specific, specific outcome, point to the rest of the world who God is and what he has done. Amen. That for this, for Israel, they were to point back to God's rescue. So this would shape them, that they were not simply to take or possess because they had the means or power. Right. And what's amazing is that this perspective shaped this covenant community. Because within this community was one of radical generosity and justice. I mean, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing that every 50 years, you know, every seven, seven Sabbaths, so when you get to the 50 year, it's the year of Jubilee, that, that debts would be forgiven, that slaves would be freed, that if you lost your property, it would be returned back to your family. The type of trust and mutual understanding of that God is a God of grace and of rescue. Therefore, you understand personal responsibility, but also that you're bound to a higher covenant relationship and who he is. You begin to relate to each other differently. Not as the rest of the nations would. Say, because you have that land, I can take it from you because I've got a bigger army. Or because I'm smarter than you, I can swindle you out of some sheep. You begin to relate to people differently. See, Israel, from their place of attachment with God, need not repeat the sins of prior generations. They did not need to take things by might, but live in response to what God had already given them. See, Israel has a bigger problem, though, of just simply taking of what's not theirs. See, God had given them land. He had given them a family. He gives them his presence and his law. Mm -hmm. Yet for some reason, it's not enough. Because keeping the law without a changed heart always results in breaking the law. We're not going to be able to relate to each other well without changed hearts. That's why some of you, that you feel conflict and tension as you're trying to do business in a world with people who aren't necessarily believers because you're doing it out of some sort of social contract where you look for a loophole rather than have the same lawgiver who shapes that interaction. And now I'm not saying just do business with Christians. What I'm simply saying is that when you are shaped by a bigger story and have an attachment, you understand there are limits and boundaries, but also... That there can be life breathed into your relationships when there is trust. And your heart undergoes a change. Because you don't have to simply control other people. You can trust God. And out of that trusting of God, it will shape your trust of people. Specifically, what our hope is, is trusting those found within that covenant community. See, it's interesting because the word of life on theft directly confronts the cycle of temptation within the Bible. The reason we can't even get it right, maybe quote-unquote as a church, even why you may feel that inkling in your own heart that I know I should live this way, but I just can't or quite get there, is because we have to face that inward renewal as well. That attachment to Jesus must bring about change. Because it's so funny that Adam and Eve saw the forbidden fruit and took for themselves. Abraham and Sarah saw their Egyptian slave and took her and did what was good in their own eyes. Aaron at Mount Sinai saw the gold, takes it, and makes a golden calf. Achan, later on, sees the gold of the Canaanites, desires it, takes it for himself. Later, Israelites' people see Saul and then take him as their king so that they can be like other nations. David sees Bathsheba and takes her. And David's family then ends up destroying each other. There is a cycle without a transformed and changing heart where we see something, desire it, and take it. So the commandment to do not steal challenges that very cycle of temptation that we all experience, that even quote unquote heroes within the Bible faced. See, sin is the inward turn to do what is right for me and my tribe in spite of others, theft is the exercising of power no matter the, to the social status and redefining the ledger in our favor. It's a battle of possessions to see and to take what we think is ours or what we deserve or what we ought to have. See, what is ours to, what is ours to possess and what isn't? I don't have to teach you this. Just watch some kids. They naturally take what's not theirs. They don't naturally know what it means to share. A natural life preservation method. Survival of the fittest. Like that that fight or flight, that preserve, that that get what's yours so that you are stable and secure has to be redefined and re-understood because we are more than simply our biology. And what this commandment starts to do is start to challenge and even change our heart to loosen our grip on what we think we ought to have and so without a heart change the desire to see and take can rule and ruin our lives and so if we ever want to break the cycle not just simply just not take we better get a better understanding on our relationship to our possessions. See, I mentioned it a moment ago, but at the core of theft is failed trust. We believe that what we have is not enough, that we deserve more, therefore we must take. And everybody is an enemy out to get what's ours. And we live life like this, so glued to our possessions because we're fearful of what it might mean for us if we lost them. At the core of theft is failed trust. Trust in God, but also trust in his people. We have two systems that have infiltrated our ability to trust. I mentioned it a moment ago. It's ourself that it's all on you. It's only up to you. You're the only one that can make stuff happen. You're the only one that can provide. You can't trust anyone. You've got to do it for yourself. While personal responsibility and accountability are good and natural things, divorced from an eternal perspective, it turns inward. And you block people out. And everybody's an enemy. And no one's a friend or family. The second that infiltrates us is also the government, that the land in which you live should provide for you, that you're not responsible for anything or anyone. It'll just show up. It'll happen. You deserve it because of where you live, so get what's coming to you and be passive. Both of these are extremes that are unhelpful and ultimately display a lack of trust in God and his people. The reciprocal nature of the relationship that should be birthed when we are attached to God should be expressed in practical ways. And now more than ever, the church has an opportunity to live out her divine calling, to challenge self, but to challenge also unhealthy dependence, to build trust with God and build trust with people where there's a mutual sharing of each other and, and, and things. I, and, and ge- I talk about this often, but Generations is a beautiful place because that's happening. Where, where you share a truck or you share a meal or, or because God has blessed you, 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 can, you can be generous to others. Where We don't hoard, but we also have so much more to go. Because it's more than just money or material things. It's also expiring that to our lives and our words. And it's resisting being a community. I should say that we're less like the seagulls and Finding Nemo. Where everything is mine. And what we begin to measure our life and our possessions by is what is His. And what has he already gifted us? And that begins to shape because then the temptation to see and take becomes less because what he has had has already been gifted maybe in community. See, that's why we even talk about gen cards and sharing your story because maybe you are someone who is in need and you don't maybe even know that next step to take. But God has gifted the church community as a whole precisely what it needs to share and help. And maybe it's a material possession. Maybe it's a connection to an individual to help you who knows more about it. And what happens is this mutual sharing becomes less about what is mine and what is ours, but also we understand the boundaries because we can work because we know that as we work, as we move, it's not just simply for us and so that we can accumulate, but it's so that we can be a people Amen. who live as if we're governed by an eternal perspective. Amen. Amen. And it only makes sense if our attachment changes. There's this n- guy in the New Testament. You may have heard of him. You may not. It's totally plausible. His name was Zacchaeus, and he was intrigued by Jesus walking on earth and wanted to know who this teacher was and what he was about. And so he climbs this tree, because he's a short little guy, to see him. And what's amazing is is Jesus is aware of who he is in his story, and he says, hey, I'm going to go spend time with you. And in time spent, Jesus with Zacchaeus. Let me just read his response because it's fascinating. In Luke chapter 19, it says this in verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of all my possessions to the poor. Lord, and if all I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay it back four times as much. And Jesus' response to him was, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, he is family. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. See, Zacchaeus had cheated, he had swindled, and some of it was within his right and his role. But he had gone above and beyond to extort and to cheat. What Jesus doesn't do is give him a list. Here are the 15 people you've wronged. Here's how much you should pay him back. Jesus' proximity to him, and Jesus fully God, fully human, understanding that he was bringing a message, living away the stories that had been told. Zacchaeus' simple attachment and proximity to Jesus began to change Zacchaeus. He didn't have to give him a list or a punch list. But his attachment changed his response. What's so amazing and so beautiful about that is that sometimes we get so caught up and okay, what I call ledger mentality. Who do we need to pay back? Who's the IOU? Where, how, how am I governed by this? And if we simply, I believe, grow in our attachment with Jesus and allow that attachment salvation to truly change us, the response will not be how much or what does that look like? It'll simply be, I've wronged some people. I need to make it right. I've cheated, or in other words, I've stolen, I need to pay him back. Not because he had to or because Jesus asked him to, but because his proximity to the Savior of the world brought about a changed heart. For the Son of Man has come to seek And save the loss. Zacchaeus realized his relationship with his possessions was distorted. And while he was legally allowed to take a certain percentage, he had taken much more and cheated and stole. And so he gave restitution as part of the law. But he also gave generously. And it changed his reality. See, sometimes our relationship with possessions are stunted and stifled because we've heard about the idea of Jesus rather than experience the reality of Jesus, which is why we need to practice taking communion intentionally. That's why leading up to Easter, we've chosen to do that. I mentioned that earlier. It's because when we realize that he has given his life for us, that he didn't simply make us or swindle us or cajole us into believing in him, but he gave up his life, displayed a life of love and grace, and that he offers us the chance to respond and believe and then live out of that reality, that he brings freedom from the crushing weight of controlling and making sure everything is mine to trusting and saying everything is his, therefore I can live and give and trust. Man, it's such a beautiful, freeing thing. And this is why when Jesus almost gives like this new Deuteronomy piece in Matthew chapter seven, where he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, the response to possessions is always generosity and eternal work. Some of you have been given gifts where you can exchange time for money and earn. And that's a beautiful and good thing. But if all it is is so that you can accumulate, we've missed the picture of the eternal family. We've missed the picture of seeing how Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that our hearts can be changed and transformed, so that he didn't do it so that we have to now earn our way to heaven, but simply because he gave, we receive and so our response to possessions must be one of growing generosity and eternal work to loosen our fingers on our possessions and what really may actually possess us so let me just give you some considerations some of you in response to this truth as you draw towards jesus Maybe you need to come clean to someone. Maybe you stole. And maybe this is an opportunity to pay them back. Not because it's an IOU or maybe because they're even aware that you stole. But because you're shaped by a different story. You're shaped by one with love and grace. Maybe some of you need to block out all the non-essential apps on your phones for the workday, And stop the stealing of time from your bosses. Some of you maybe need to turn off all tech one hour and maybe play a family game with your your spouse or your kids this week because TV has stolen time from those relationships and you're allowing that to steal. Maybe some of you need to pick one item of excess in your house and clean, declutter and get rid of it. Some of you maybe need to just pick one room And say, I'm going to simplify. Because you've realized, and it happens to all of us, that we see and we take, we view and accumulate. And we've measured our success of our life on what we possess, rather than who possesses us. What I hope for Generations Church is that we be people who are marked by Jesus who he is and what he has done. And so that we, don't simp- we can break the cycles because of his power, that we don't simply see and take, but we take the pattern of Jesus. And we see and we don't take, but we see and we give. We see and we respond to who he is. The solution to stealing is the habit of generosity. Stealing is valuing a possession over a person. And generosity is valuing a person over possessions. Jesus had all the treasure in heaven. And he gave it up for you. If we are people marked by this, our community needs to see, hear, and experience that. So let me ask you, what story are you telling with your lives? What story are you telling with how you accumulate things in your possessions? What story are you telling with about your relationship with those? And maybe as you start to answer that question with Jesus, you get some clarity that say, I'm governed not by what I have, but who has me. And that story makes its way into all areas of your life. So let's be people marked by that. Not simply just trying not to steal, but by people who live in response to Jesus again and again, because he has rescued us. Let's pray. God, you are good. So may we just simply respond and be this week. May we consider our relationship with our possessions, with where things are at in our lives, And if something has a hold of on, on us, loosen its grip. God, I thank you for your trust in us, for your belief in us, for your love for us, that you gave up the treasures of heaven for us. May we just simply live by that story and that truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.